0: Today, on the Blokes in Your Ear podcast, we have zookeeper Chad Criddle. Chad works at the Adelaide Zoo as one of the keepers for birds and herptofauna. Chad discusses with us all about the conservation acts that are put in place by Adelaide Zoo and how they're working to conserve the animals of Australia and from around the world. There's a really interesting insight into what goes on in a zoo and what goes on outside the zoo. Let's give it up for Chad Criddle. It's time for the Blokes in Your Ear podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Chad. Thanks for coming on, mate.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I, I really appreciate the, uh, the chance to have a chat and hello to all the listeners out there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so for those who don't know, what do you do uh, for your job and where do you work at the moment? Uh,
1: so I currently work at Adelaide Zoo, uh, which is one of the the two properties that belong to Zoos South Australia. Uh, and we're in an interesting position at Zoo South Australia because we're the only major zoo organisation in the country that's not a government department uh, and also that's a completely um, registered charity. So we're a, a not-for-profit conservation charity and we're owned by our members. Um, so I, I, I like that concept for an organisation about conservation, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, and my role there at the moment, I'm the senior keeper of birds and herptafauna, which um, herptofauna is essentially a, just a techie way of describing any land-based animal that's uh, uh, an ectotherm which people often refer to as cold-blooded, so frogs, uh, reptiles, uh, so amphibians, all of those groups fall under herpetofauna. So I look after those animals and the team of people that look after them.
0: Yep. Oh, lovely. So obviously working at the zoo at the moment, has it been a bit different since the uh, cur- current health issues have, have arose?
1: Oh, certainly. I think... Um, I think everyone can relate to there being change in in their world to some degree as a result of this. Um, I know I, I feel very fortunate to be working. Um, in the, I know that not all lines of work and industries are able to work at the moment, so I feel very fortunate to be working. But having the zoo without visitors is, is certainly an interesting experience um, for us and the animals yeah. as well. Um, but it's, it's you know, just fortunate to be able to be there and, and we're still there every day providing the same level of care to our animals because um, the animals don't really realise what's going on. Um, so we've still got to be there every day for them and, um, but, yeah, certainly just a lot of changes in you know the the way we have meetings. everyone's getting very proficient at the use of different different team based meeting apps, and mm. um there's some bigger ramifications for the zoo community in the coming few months, um, with the limitation on movement between the states. It's making it much more challenging in this uh, this year to move animals um, between zoos for our conservation programs. So we're um, having some uh, some planning around that and how we're going to deal with that this year. So that's affected uh, some of our work in that sense. But um, it's still all, all guns blazing and, and caring for our animals. We're just having to be a bit more creative about how we do it
0: yeah and i feel like that's the same with a lot of uh professions at the moment you've got to adapt to the environment you're in and obviously at the zoo you've still got to go in and do the same things every day there's just not those extra people coming in as well
1: exactly and we're spending a lot of our time um working with our communications team uh, to engage with the community in different ways so utilizing social media services to do live streaming of keeper interactions, keeper talks, being able to answer people's questions, uh, because people still want that engagement. And just because you're working from home or not able to go out and visit the zoo, people still want to be able to interact with the zoo and organisations in, in their world. So, um, we're just, yeah, being very creative with the use of technology and, and being able to share our animals in different ways. And so far it's proving um, successful. We're having a lot of engagement from the community here in South Australia and, and around Australia as well. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting times.
0: Yeah, and I guess a lot of the um, time that we've been in isolation, the children have been at home from school. So obviously you could use the... Live streaming as an educational tool at times as well for those uh, children that are coming in at home. Exactly. Nothing to do, put on a stream from the zoo. All the kids are going to love that. So, yeah, it's really good to see.
1: Yeah, I did a um, I did a pelican live stream last week, which went for about twenty minutes, and we had a lot of messages coming in from early childhood centres and um, kids that were at home from school where. They were all sitting down and, and watching this stream as a, as a part of their education. So it's, it's thinking a little bit outside of the box and you're not getting the same personal interaction with the animal, but you're still able to engage uh, with the keeper and the animal just in a slightly different way.
0: Yeah. Um, so sticking on the topic of children, obviously you've got a great passion for animals. Did that start in your childhood?
1: Oh, it certainly did. I think I think like most people who end up in my career, um, invariably there's a, a wide um, menagerie of different animals that had ended up living at home at some point as a kid. Um, I had very tolerant parents when it came to the amount of pets that would call our our uh, our family home, uh, home. So we had, I had everything from budgies to turtles to cockatiels at one point we had a three-legged goat <laughs> who went by the name of bob um and i was the uh, i was the rage at kindergarten that year because it bring your pet to kindy day uh, everyone else was bringing in guinea pigs and so on and my dad brought in the three-legged goat and <laughs> um and he was great he was uh he was a lot of fun so we had a lot of animals at home um but i was always I always loved the zoo as well. For me, and uh, I grew up in Sydney, so for me, that local zoo was was Toronga. Um, I lived on the northern beaches, so it wasn't too far, and looked forward to to trips there every single year. So yeah, the love for animals certainly started there. Um, it didn't become a serious career pathway in my mind probably until my teens. Uh, But there was always a there was always a passion and love for animals Um, and particularly birds kicked off when I would have been about seven or eight. The free flight bird show at Taronga Zoo Mm. started in 1997 and so I went there at around that age and I remember watching it and as a you know seven or eight year old these birds flying around outdoors and seemingly coming from nowhere and landing on landing on a presenter's hand uh really got me hooked and it and it kind of fascinated me this how that all worked and um so from that point I always had a budgie or a cockatiel at home and would put on put on bird shows for the family at home and and um so yeah it, it kind of developed from there but yeah it wasn't until my teens that I got a very serious focus on it as a career path
0: yeah well shifting on to that uh career path that you started at that younger age thinking about it what were the steps that you took to get to where you are in your career
1: well it kind of it in some ways it was a bit of a diversion for me to end up in the zoos because when i was younger i was um i was a theater kid i loved I love performing, I did drama classes, I'm a, I'm a singer so I did um, singing classes and I was doing um, professional musical theatre as a child so I did a few of the big productions that came to Sydney when I was sort of 11 to 12 and when those, those finished, the last one was Oliver, um, when those finished I was kind of looking for something to do in the time that was taken up with those shows that would continue to work those presentation and um, those presentation skills. And Taronga Zoo had started a youth volunteer program that was called Youth at the Zoo. And at the time it had a focus on um, in the education department. So it was working with the uh, education department there on some of their engagement programs. so. Uh, Roar and Snore, which was a sleepover program, which still is very successful and runs there to this day. Uh, Zoo Adventures, which was a a school holidays vacation care program. You would assist in those programs. So I joined up to that program looking at it from a um, presentation skills, kind of keeping that skill working. Mm. Um, And I liked animals. So I was like, well, I I can talk about animals and it was while i was at the zoo you know on my weekends and school holidays that i started doing more engagement with the the keeping side because we were able to do days in school holidays where we'd work with the keepers and that's when i really fell in love with it as a as a job and i reckon it would have been about 15 or 16 i kind of made a made a decision that the the concept of theater and um As much as I loved it, probably wasn't my career path and I I wanted to focus on zoos. So I volunteered all through high school and finished high school, started a university degree um, in biodiversity and conservation. Mm -hmm. But that year, I also happened to be fortunate enough to uh, get onto the casual books at Taronga as a casual zookeeper and ended up getting work pretty well um, straight away at the uh, free flight bird show at Taronga. And um, the thing about being a zookeeper is it's a very competitive industry. Lots of people want to do it. And so you kind of take work at the first place that it becomes available. I was just incredibly fortunate that that role that work popped up on the department that had first sparked my interest when I was very young. And so I started working there and when I wasn't working, I was volunteering my time there. And at times I was there more days volunteering than I was there paid as a casual employee, but I just loved it and I was absorbing knowledge from the team there. It's a very experienced team of trainers and, Working with the birds in that environment, I just I couldn't stop. I I loved it, and uh, so I left left my uni degree because I was getting full time hours, and then the opportunity came up to have a permanent job, um, which is kind of the the holy grail for a young zookeeper is a, a permanent full time job because mm. if there's so few of them come up. But it was in Cairns in North Queensland. So I, I packed my bags and got on a plane and moved to Cairns without with very little notice. I think I remember um walking in and telling my mum I'd already booked my flights. She had no idea that I'd put in an application for a job in far north Queensland. <laughs> and I I got offered the job, booked my flights in my room, and then walked out to Mum in the living room and said, Oh mum, I'm moving to Cairns in two weeks' time. And it, <laughs> it was <laughs> that that was in that that didn't go down as well as planned but um yeah and it just kind of kept going from there and since then i've worked i worked in queensland for uh, a few years during that time i got to go to the united states and i spent um spent some time working with uh, arguably one of the best bird trainers in the world uh, who goes by the name of steve martin not the comedian he is very funny but he's not the comedian Uh, but he uh, runs a really big animal training company in the United States. And so I spent some time working with him and then I moved back to Taronga, ended up spending a few years working with seals and sea lions, so a little bit different, Mm -hmm. um, but working on the seal show there. And then I moved to Adelaide in 2015 to help um, work the free flight show down here. So, yeah, it's taken me in lots of different directions in terms of I've moved a lot but yeah I absolutely loved it
0: yeah it seems like you've got a lot of experience so far um compared to maybe someone of a similar similar age in the field because you got that early opportunity um what was the key difference you said you went to America what was the difference between how they run their uh zoo programs and animal programs compared to here in Australia
1: that's a that's a good question I think um, one thing where Australia stands with the rest of the world and I, I feel very proud of the work we do is on our, our conservation work in Australian mm. zoos um, but Australia as an being an island nation, we're very conscious uh, conscious of quarantine we so there's um, uh, you don't you don't want to bring stuff in that doesn't exist in the country in terms of diseases and so for that reason, the animals that we have within Australia, within our care, is a smaller amount of diversity in comparison to the rest of the world. Yeah. Um, and partly that's because we have less zoos. And so to be responsible in our, in our population management, um, you only want to be able to run sustainable populations. So that means each zoo can't have something different completely from each other. We have to work together so working in the States, we had a range of animals which just we don't have in Australia to work with, particularly on the bird front, because birds are probably the hardest animal to bring into Australia mm. when it comes to quarantine. Um, so I was working with groups of birds like toucans from South America and, and hornbills from Africa and Asia and... Um, big flocks of macaws, the big South American parrots, which we have in Australia, but not as many as they have in the United States. Mm. Um, vultures and and a whole range of birds of prey, which we don't have in Australia. So it was, it, for me, it was a species diversity, um, getting to develop my skills in that sense, but also developing skills in an environment which is, just full of expertise because there's so many very large zoos in the United States. There's a lot of highly qualified people. And if you're a young person who wants to learn, for me, that was a great place to go because I could immediately be surrounded by, you know, arguably the the best of the best and, and spend time learning from them. So it was an amazing foundation. Yeah. However, it also shows you when you go there, just how good our Australian facilities are as well, because there's a lot of things that we really lead the way on, um, in comparison to other parts of the world. But yeah, species diversity was a, was a big draw card for me. Um, and also the show, the main show that I worked on over there, which was, it was a pop-up show. So, uh, was running at the Texas State Fair, which is our their equivalent of like our agricultural shows. Mm-hmm. So it was only ran for three weeks, but we had 21 trainers who'd come from all around the world to work for this company and just over 80 birds of variety of different species. And we had three weeks to train the birds, build the aviaries, you know, build the kitchen even um, and then put on five shows a day and each show there was 5,000 people in the audience because nothing's, you know, nothing's bigger than Texas. Everything's enormous yeah. there. And so it was just, it was a crash course in skill building for me um, in a amazing environment. And even just the conservation work we were able to do because you had 5,000 people coming to every show at the end of each show, we had um, ravens which would sit on a donation box at the front of the show and people could come down and donate to the conservation funds that this company had and all that money would go to conservation programs in Costa Rica and South America working with a variety of different birds. And we raised in the space of, in the space of three weeks, we raised close to $100,000, um, all of which went to these amazing projects and so it's yeah it was an amazing opportunity that I couldn't say no to
0: yeah well as you spoke about how Australia has the stricter quarantine uh obviously we've got some very unique animals here and being an island they're only in Australia um do you think that that plays a big part in the strictness of the laws coming in that we have such unique and identifiable fauna and flora here already
1: oh totally and i and i think it's a good thing um having seen what happens when you're you're dealing with um viruses which have come in in captive collections overseas Mm. i understand why we want to avoid that um, only because our ecosystems are so different from the rest of the world and they're so unique and important to protect. So I understand it completely. Yeah. Um, there's, in saying that, we are working with the government. So the zoo industry is working with the government to look at how we can um, change the laws slightly but still have really good quarantine so for example we're working on a project at the moment uh, which is involving uh, rhinos so we're looking at protecting uh, close to 30 rhinos uh, by housing them at our safari park here in South Australia Mm -hmm. and to do that they've got to do a year's quarantine in New Zealand before coming here and that's quite a costly process but we're doing it Um, but that took years of negotiation to even get to that point so we're working on how we can with the government because we want to protect australian quarantine but we also we've got some conservation work that we really know we can help with that um by being able to be involved in certain programs would be ideal but at the same time our focus in australia and it's kind of where we we where we uniquely placed we've got a multitude of species in Australia that need our help mm-hmm. from a conservation perspective, and those animals are only here; they're not in any other part of the world. And so, if we're not conserving those animals, nobody else is. So, it, we're heavily focused on those species and protecting those species in our Australian zoos, which is something I'm very proud of, and I think the the industry as a whole uh, should be very proud of as well, because. We do incredible work in that field.
0: Yeah. Um, so moving on to your current position at the Adelaide Zoo, you're the keeper of the birds and the herpetofauna. fauna. Is there a link between birds and reptiles? Because you find a lot in wildlife scenarios they're put together. What's the link between the two animals there?
1: It's a very good question because on the surface of it, a lot of people kind of look at them and go,
0: yeah, it doesn't
1: really make sense. But... Um, Birds and reptiles, are, are birds' birds' closest living relatives are reptiles. Mm. And when you speak to the majority of the scientific community, they will adamantly say that birds are living dinosaurs. Yeah. Um, so birds belong to a group called uh, theropods, which theropods are categorised by the structure of their feet, their bones, the presence of feathers, uh, and their skeletal um the skeletal positioning, mm. and they have exactly the same characteristics as dinosaurs do in the sense of their skeletal structure. Um, the fact that they had feathers, a lot of dinosaurs now, when they they're looking at fossilized dinosaurs, um, they're seeing feather follicles in skin. So yeah. feathers were have were around with dinosaurs, and a lot of the living birds today are actually closer related to dinosaurs than say a tortoise is. So um, they are very closely linked as animals and being that they're both egg laying animals as well, that kind of gives them a link, but mm. their eggs are very different um, in that reptiles, very soft and leathery. Whereas if a, a bird's eggs are, are quite hard, Yeah. Um, but they're, they are the closest related groups that we have at the zoo so placing them together was a it was a new move in terms of a department so i'm the first person at adelaide zoo that's had the role of the super the supervisor or well, senior senior keeper of birds and herpta before they were separate departments so i'm the first person that's had the role of looking after them together um but yeah it it also combines a lot of our key conservation programs because they sit both on on the reptile, the herpetofauna, and bird department. So bringing them together um, meant that we could focus that a little bit more as well.
0: Mm. So carrying on at the zoo, what are some of the animals that you keep in your uh, area of the zoo? Are they all native, or is there some that are brought in from other areas of the world?
1: So we've got, we've certainly got some exotic animals. However, um, probably the vast majority of the group of animals that I care for are, are natives. At the moment, the group of animals that uh, my team looks after is a uh, numbers just over fifteen hundred individual animals, mm-hmm. and that they range in size from the smallest of finches and fairy wrens up to. Uh, giant tortoises, cassowary, uh, and anaconda. So we've got um, we've got a pretty wide ranging group of animals. We have macaws, so the big South American parrots. We're actually the only zoo in Australia that's home to a hyacinth macaw, which is the biggest living parrot in the world. Mm-hmm. They're enormous and bright blue, stunning birds. Uh, our one was a, a customs customs confiscation so we provided a home for that animal after he was illegally acquired in in australia Mm. um and so we've got you know a pretty broad range of animals in that sense we've got uh palm cockatoos which up until recently we were the only facility in australia housing palm cockatoos which are the the largest cockatoo species in the world and they live in far Northern Queensland. So up in Cape York and into Papua New Guinea. So we, we house those birds. Um, and then in our reptile department, we've got a lot of native Australian reptiles, but then we also have giant tortoises, uh, Mm. from the Aldabra islands, which are in the Seychelles. Uh, we also have an anaconda. We've got blood python from Southeast Asia, got a species of rattlesnake from the Caribbean. So we've got a, a pretty wide range of different animals within that group uh, but yes it's just over 1500 animals so it's a lot of uh a, a lot of animals to keep tabs on and look after yeah. but it's I, I love that challenge and the team that i work with are brilliantly um focused and passionate about the work that they do so we're um fortunate in that sense
0: yeah um, going back to the birds being theropods, um, obviously we've got some very large birds here in Australia, and you mentioned the cassowary. When I look at a cassowary, I think that thing is a dinosaur. Uh, do you work closely with any of these at your zoo?
1: Yeah, so we we've got uh, we've got cassowary and we've got uh, emus. So, we've got two of the, the ratites, the large ratites. Monato mm-hmm. uh, Safari Park, which is our second property, it's about 40 minutes outside of Adelaide. They have ostriches there. So, we've got kind of the three big, biggest birds. Um, and when you do look at them, you think dinosaur. They're yeah. a, a really interesting bird. So, ratite is uh, derives from the Latin word meaning raft. Mm. And it it comes from the concept that those birds don't have a keel keel bone. So spelt the same way as the keel of a boat. And if you imagine when you've got a chicken at home, it's got that kind of plate bone um, along the breast, and Mm -hmm. that's where all the flight muscles attach. And so the big, the ratites don't have that bone. And so like a boat that doesn't have a keel, it's called a raft. So that's where the name ratite comes from. Um, but the concept of them not being able to fly, there's a lot of differing evidence to suggest mm. that they either flew first and then lost the ability to fly or they never were able to fly. Um, in saying that, they've, they have continued to have a lot of those uh, features which were linked to the theropod dinosaurs, even just their body positioning. Mm. Um But what's really interesting is actually that the closest living genetic relative to, say, a Tyrannosaurus rex is actually a chicken, the domestic chicken, (laughs) um, which I find fascinating. But the the size of the birds is linked to the time that they evolved. So the larger birds had this window between when the dinosaurs went extinct and when mammals really kicked Mm. in and, and evolved into wider mammal diversity where the larger birds took the opportunity to get very large but since mammals diversified no other birds have taken that that same route so the the large birds that we have are very ancient they've been around for a long time um, but they're very successful in the environments that they live in they're a, they're a fascinating group of birds the ratites i really like them
0: mm. Well, we've got a paleontologist coming on next week that we're going to discuss megafauna and that sort of thing in there. Oh, So fantastic. I'd be interested in seeing his thoughts on cassowaries and ratites and seeing where the link is to um, more ancient types of animals. Um, but I yeah. think Hanan has a question uh, for you now. Yes.
2: Hey, Chad. Thanks for uh, letting us know a little bit about your insight. I just wanted to take it back a little bit to the conservation. I'm just wondering how zoos go about um, their conservation efforts. So is it more about reintroducing the species to their natural habitat? Or is it more about keeping the certain species alive depending on their um, endangerment status? Or or does it vary depending on their endangerment status?
1: Um, it's a great question, and it varies very much depending on the um, the status of the animal in the wild. The, the key concept is that all conservation efforts should be focused in the long term on having those animals surviving without intervention in their natural habitat in the wild. So without a doubt, if we're involved in a conservation project, that's the long term Goal. How we get there depends on the animal. Mm. Um, So there's uh, various species that I work with, which are at different stages along that journey. So, uh, Western Swamp Tortoise is a really interesting one. They're a little freshwater turtle species that are found in Western Australia. They live in now only three wetland areas just south of perth they're the only place that they're found now mm. and in the 1980s well they were they were thought to be extinct they were rediscovered in the 50s and then in the, the 1980s they were down to about 30 individual animals and mm. so those to, uh, turtles were brought into care uh, at the perth zoo the perth zoo started working with the government department there on protecting the environment. But at the same time, began breeding those animals in human care. Adelaide Zoo joined the program. So we look after those animals. We breed them. Those animals leave our care, journey back to Western Australia, and then are released back into the wild. And that that wild population now sits at um, a few hundred animals mm-hmm. in the wild and several hundred in human care. So we've taken an animal from 30 individual animals to what is now a sustaining population it's sustainable it it can continue to to grow and function um so now the the efforts are now more understanding those last key environments where those animals live uh, and working on protecting them so we're um so another way that we can serve animals as well is we work in the field with an animal that we keep in human care. So for example, red tail, black cockatoos, um, a beautiful parrot. And we've got a few of them at Adelaide zoo. All of ours are former pets. So Mm. they're imprinted on people. They are very friendly. They're not suitable candidates to release back into the wild. However, Mm. people come to the zoo, they have an experience with those birds they fall in love with them. And while they're having that experience, we talk to them about the habitat needs of a red-tailed black cockatoo. Mm. And you create that empathy because without empathy, people won't want to work to save animals at all. And so we create that empathy. And at the same time, those people who've visited the zoo, they've paid their admission, they might do an encounter. So they might uh, purchase an encounter or they might donate some money at the end of our bird show we then send funds to a project that's been running in the southeast of south australia around mount gambia it's called cockies for cockies it's been operating for um, over a decade and we work with landowners in that uh, part of the world on revegetating their properties to provide food and nesting plants for the red-tailed black cockatoo And then we support the local community in surveying um, and censusing the population of uh, red-tailed black cockatoo in that environment where it's endangered and it needs help. So in that program, we're not necessarily breeding the animals at the zoo and releasing them, but the zoo itself is providing the protection of that environment. And people are having an experience with that animal at the zoo that kind of draws that link in their minds between this animal and the work that we do in the field. So there's varying levels. And then there's one other animal that I'll talk about, which is uh, in this question, which is an orange-bellied parrot, which is a tiny parrot species. They're about the size of a budgie and they're only found in Australia. They're one of only three migrating parrot species in the entire world. And there's less than 50 of them in the wild, in the whole world as we speak. So there's about 35 of them in the wild at the moment. Mm. Um, I have more of them in, in my team's care at Adelaide Zoo than left in the wild. And cooperatively as zoos within Australia, we're working with government departments. So we've built a sustainable population in human care of about 500 birds. Mm. And we're now working with scientists and government departments in the field to understand the threatening processes, protect the environment. And we've actually, we had birds travel from Adelaide Zoo over to mainland Victoria last year, where we released them around the Werribee area. Um, And so we're continuing to be involved in that project as well. So, yeah. I mean, that's a little glimpse of just some of the work that we do. And then each organisation, each zoo around Australia has all their own projects that they're involved with as well. So mm. it's, so it's, it's a, an,
2: really a joint effort as well,
1: isn't it? Oh, it's a huge cooperative effort. You can't really do it on your own. You've got to work with other zoos, government departments, volunteer groups, mm. uh, community groups and then that's how you get long-term sustainable conservation
2: yeah and i guess a lot of what you talk about is reintroducing to the environment and keeping the environment have you found that global warming and a lot of the recent changes are affecting that in any way oh or are there any with, with any certain with, species that are more susceptible to uh to global without, warming?
1: A, without a doubt um it just adds an extra element of complexity to what is already a complex issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, Western swamp tortoises, those those turtles I was talking about before, the rain patterns in Western Australia are changing, and so the northernmost wetland that they live in isn't getting as much water that they would that it historically would get. And so um, those animals likely won't be able to live in that habitat in ten to fifteen years' time. So you've got to look at, okay, do we now create a new wetland further south Hmm. and follow that changing climate to provide those animals a chance to survive into the future? Um, The climate change in terms of weather patterns for that little migrating parrot, the orange-bellied parrot, certainly has an issue on food stocks that are available. Um, It's... Climates have changed in the past. There's no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had an ice age, but the, the difference is is that because of the cause of, of the climate change that we're living through at the moment, it's happening mm-hmm. at a rate which is so much faster than the environments have ever had to cope with before. Mm-hmm. And for animals to be able to evolve to cope with that, there's going to be some significant um, climate. Uh, conservation work that needs to be done for these animals to survive into into the future for sure because um, it, it's going to have dramatic effects mm. it, it already
2: is but it's going to have
1: more advanced dramatic effects as it continues mm.
2: what do you think makes an, an animal more ready to cope with those changes have you found any specific species adapted a lot better to do that it's That's a really good question.
1: Generally, when it comes to significant change in the environment, um, generalists, so animals which eat a varied diet, can nest in or, or live in various um, habitats and constantly look for new feed opportunities, generally they do better in a changing environment and that's always been the case. So if you look around the CBDs of Australia, you see animals that have already successfully adapted to change. So brush tail possums, magpies, um, uh, 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 cockatoos, those are all animals which actively look for new feed opportunities in their environment and they're, they're generalists in the way they approach their environment so that they can deal with change. Mm -hmm. specialist animals so animals which might live off one or two foods might live in one particular area or have found a niche in a in a a weather pattern that helps them get food in a in a specific order that helps them breed um generally don't do as well to with change so i look at koalas as a great example koalas are incredibly specialized to feed on eucalyptus that's Mm -hmm. That's an incredibly specialised diet. And so as you have changes in the nutritional content of eucalyptus, because the rainfall patterns have changed, the ability for a koala to have a healthy and long life in which they reproduce is going to change. And where those eucalyptus trees are going to be growing is going to change as well. And because that's pretty much it for that animal in terms of habitat, food, its environment that change is going to be harder for those animals to deal with than an animal that can go well today i'm not going to eat the eucalyptus i'm going to eat the wattle or i'm going to eat the deciduous elm tree that this person's planted in their back garden so that's what you tend to see specialist animals tend to be find change in the
2: environment a lot harder Mm. yeah i think yeah that sounds really interesting and yeah and i guess it is a lot it is a collaborative effort like you oh. said all this is and i guess everyone around the world as well uh, totally. being a little bit more conscious about that um, totally. thanks for asking those questions i'll pass it on to tommy he's got a few questions himself
3: g'day chad interesting listening to you mate um i was just wondering there's probably a few young kids and adults sort of listening to this and they might be considering a career as a zookeeper so I was wondering if you could just run us through your daily schedule and what a week looks like. I know it'll vary, a heat, but if you can sort of uh, run us through that, that'd be fantastic.
1: Yeah, well, the, um, the it certainly varies a lot depending on sort of what animal you look after, but the, the bare basics of it is checking your animals every single morning. So you're looking at how the animal's behaving, has it had any physical changes from the day before? But often behaviour will tell us a lot more, a lot quicker, as to if an animal's a bit sick, or um, if, are they a bit hungrier today than they were yesterday? That's kind of the first glimpse of change in an animal. So you check that. We're also we also look at the environment the the animals live in. So structurally, are uh, the exhibits you know are they looking? All good this morning do I need to call the maintenance department down or you know depending on what zoo you work at you might also be the maintenance department so um, so you might have to you go okay oh well, I might um, I've got to fix something there today or I might reattach this perch um, there's obviously a lot of cleaning so I a lot of people look at the work we do and and um, our Instagram feeds and a lot of the time we're cuddling animals on the Instagram feed. But to to spend that 10 minutes with it cuddling that animal that day, we've spent, you know, two hours cleaning. So mm. that's the reality of it. So kids, if you want to be a zookeeper, the, the first thing I would say is help mum and dad if you've got a pet at home by cleaning up after the pet at home. Go out into the yard, pick up the dog poo, clean out the water bowl, do that sort of stuff because... That's the reality of of our job. So on the the bird department at Adelaide Zoo, we've got about 700 food trays that go out every single day and they all have to be washed every single day. So it's about an hour and a half of dishwashing and about an hour and a half of preparing food. So um, we all tend to like cooking as well zookeepers because we spend a lot of time getting very good at um preparing food so Mm -hmm. that's a that's a nice side effect of, of being a zookeeper but yeah we spend a lot of time preparing food for the animals preparing enrichment that's a really key part of a modern zookeepers role uh about you know 20 years ago 20 30 years ago the idea of behavior and and the mental health of animals uh really took to the fore and so It's not enough for an animal in your care to just give it food and water and, cool, I'll walk away now. If that animal is an animal that climbs in its environment, we need to provide that animal opportunities to present that behaviour in our care. So you might build a different structure in its enclosure every day that it can climb over. You might put smells around that animal's enclosure of its... uh, So snakes, for example, if they're so based on their sense of smell, if you put different smells in their enclosure, it's incredibly interesting for them because it's something different. So we spend a lot of our days looking at that as well. It's not just as simple as provide it with food and water and off you go. We also have to look after the behavioural well well-being of our animals. So providing that enrichment, training as well. Training is a big part of what I've done. And not just for the shows that people see when they come to the zoo, the majority of the training that we do actually helps us take care of our animals. So a great example of that is I've got a a giant tortoise at Adelaide Zoo. She's middle-aged for a giant tortoise. Uh, But as part of her annual health check, we liked getting blood just to check the blood levels in in the same way that if you go to the doctor, you get a blood test. Um, But without... We didn't want to have to physically restrain her to do that. So, we actually trained her by providing her her favorite treats and the interaction that she loved to voluntarily walk up to us, extend her neck, and let us draw blood from a vein in her neck. So, that training makes that process less stressful for her, less stressful for us, and that animal's choosing to participate in its healthcare. So we've trained, you know, the pandas that very famously live at Adelaide Zoo um, voluntarily are involved in ultrasounds and um, doing medical procedures so you can check their teeth. So that's a big part of our day as well. Um, But then at the end of the day, cleaning. And there's also, of course, administration work. So like any job, there's there's paperwork involved. And that's important because you've got to record what went into your animal in terms of food, when you're cleaning up the poo, we check the poo. So what does the poo look like? Is it Does it look like a normal, healthy poo? Is there something in there that shouldn't be there? Uh, so we can send that up to get a poo sample and you'd record that in your diary that the poo looks a little bit different. It's a very important part of what we do. Um, so there's some very interesting conversations that happen over a, a zookeeping morning tea or lunch table, I can tell you now, because
2: <laughs> for mm-hmm. us
1: that's that's an important work conversation. Um but yeah so there's paperwork involved and and in my job um now there's you know lots of emails to see to and that management side of things but um the 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 bare bones of it lots of cleaning and and then providing the best care that you can for your animals and we just do that day in day out on our birthdays on christmas day uh, public holidays we're there every day so it's um it's a job that you do because you're passionate about it uh, for sure
3: yeah beautiful Now that's a great insight into it because i think that a lot of people yeah they see the instagram or facebook posts and they see you know the you know the real highlights of the job or those little snippets um but it's important to remember that that's not the whole thing like there's a lot of other things like the cleaning that's probably something i wouldn't have thought about um yeah that a and i think it does the reality of
1: working in an organisation that is a seven-day-a-week operation, we're there every day. And so I've had I've, – I'm in my 12th year now of zookeeping. And in those 12 years, I've had three Christmases with my family without having to go to work. So it's, you know, it's that sort of side of things as well, which um, it really takes – People who are passionate about looking after these animals and and having these animals around to do this sort of work because it's um yeah it's it it's intensive but if you love it it's like they say if you find a job you love you never work a day in your life but it's um it's an interesting line of work in that sense.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And the last little question I had was um how many zookeepers do you work alongside? Because you've obviously got a lot of animals to care for, so...
1: Yeah, so our zoo has, uh, off the top of my head, I reckon about 40 to 50 keepers on site. Um, maybe a few more, but it, it's um, it depends on the area that you're working in, how many people are there. So as a general rule, at a minimum, we'd have three people working with the birds and one person working with the reptiles a day at a minimum, um, but that changes. And that varies depending on what zoo you work at. So um, when I worked at Cairns Tropical Zoo, which is a zoo that's now closed, but that was a small family-run operation, um, we had 16 full-time staff. So it, it varies quite a lot depending on where you work. Um But yeah, there's a lot of zookeepers there. But the reality is, is that our team is our maintenance staff, our horticultural team. So the team that look after the gardens and all the plants that provide to our animals, uh, our vet staff. So we've got full-time vets and vet nurses that operate our vet hospital. So I think Zoo South Australia at the moment has about 400 employees across both sites. Um, so it's a it's a big team of people that that makes it happen
3: yeah for sure and the last little question as well would be to become a zookeeper is it university or is there other pathways to be a qualified zookeeper
1: yeah it's a really good question um the pathways in is is uh it tends to revolve around some form of voluntary experience so the one thing that pretty well every zookeeper has in common is that they've volunteered at some point in their journey to becoming a paid keeper um the recognized qualification in australia for a zookeeper is a certificate three uh, that's offered through uh, that's a TAFE qualification um there's a registered training organization now that operates out of most of the major zoos in australia now though that provides that qualification and as part of that you do practical work um so that's certainly there but i would never tell people to turn away from a university degree because um any qualification that you have um that'll help show that you've put the work in and you want to do this sort of job will help you because it is a it is quite a competitive industry um remembering that I, I would think volunteering is certainly if you could find a way to volunteer to build those practical skills it will undoubtedly help you in the long run
3: yeah for sure thanks for that that'll just help some yeah young people or older whatever um yeah possibly, for sure you know get into the industry all right i'll um all it over to connor yeah so um i just want to quickly touch back on the uh
0: conservation side of things So, obviously, working with birds and reptiles, they're probably the key like vulnerable uh, species to introduce species. Now, I know that there's Mm -hmm. a big problem with feral cats in Australia. Is there anything in place to stop all these feral cats eating all the birds and the reptile eggs and all of that? Because I feel like it's a big issue that maybe not everyone is aware of.
1: The invasive invasive species in Australia is an enormous issue, particularly cats. Cats, feral cats cause an enormous amount of damage in our environment and also feral foxes. Feral foxes are, are, are pretty bad as well um, when it comes to predation of native animals. There is certainly work going on. So um, I know I can speak as, a, as an organisation. We work with a, a, a wildlife um, a reserve in, I guess you could call it, in northern South Australia in the Flinders, where we've done a lot of work with the yellow-footed rock wallaby. They're our logo at Adelaide Zoo. And we bred and reintroduced a population of yellow-footed rock wallabies back into the northern Flinders Ranges in South Australia, where they were formerly found. Mm. Uh, it's now a sustainable population. But as part of that, we have employees that go up every year and assist with feral animal control because it's it's all good to breed and release as many animals as you want. But if you haven't protected that environment, um, the, you're not really helping the issue. So we um, have staff that are involved with that, uh, that project. Um, but then there's also other groups that, um in with working with private landholders, get big areas, put up predator-proof fencing and clear that environment of predators and then those animals within those predator-proof areas. So um there's a lot of places like that for bilbies and betongs. Mm. And unfortunately that's the reality for wild living for some of our native animals at the moment. So Ah, uh, bilbies is a great example of that. Uh, Zoo South Australia has bred uh, well over two hundred bilbies and wow. released released the, uh, a portion of those animals back into for what the animal is wild, a wild existence. It doesn't have intervention from people in the sense it's not being fed. It has to find its own food. It has to um, reproduce for itself. But they're into predator proof areas that are fenced off. So essentially you're getting a national park and building an enormous predator-proof fence around the outside, which is an enormous cost to do and it makes that conservation work very expensive. And at the end of the day, in some of our more urban environments would be made a lot easier when people keep their cats inside. Mm -hmm. So um, most people are very good about it. Now, so most people are very good at keeping their cats inside, even if it's just for the night time. But the reality of, of cats is they're an amazing predator. And I've, you know, we don't have any hatred for the cats or the foxes, they're just doing exactly what evolution has built those animals to do. They're amazing predators, and uh, so you know, they're, they're doing what they sh- they're evolved to do. Um, but we can be responsible if we own those animals and make sure that we um, keep those animals contained if we're choosing to keep them. And the reality of invasive animals in Australia is is some of them are going to be here to stay for a very long time. Mm. Um, so we're doing what we can around them. But yeah, it's, they're a big issue for sure.
0: Yeah, and I feel like the lack of us having any real apex predators like cats and foxes um, naturally here uh, leaves the animals quite vulnerable because they don't have that defence mechanism in place that other animals would in environments where there's wolves and bobcats and that sort of thing.
1: I think so. Um, We certainly had... So before dingoes arrived in mainland Australia, the the Tasmanian devil was found across the majority of the mainland Mm. of Australia. Um, but what we've introduced into the Australian environment are the two best predators essentially that exist on the planet, which mm. is cats and foxes. They really are just insanely good predators. And so when you put them into an environment that's evolved, as you say, in the absence of a cat or a fox, it causes serious problems.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, Going back to the care side of things that Tommy touched on, obviously you've got a wide variety of animals. Some of them are going to be nocturnal or awake at Uh night or diurnal, awake during the day. How do you implement a day-night cycle for these animals at the zoo? Uh, Are they all on the same sort of cycle? Do you try to bring out nocturnal animals when it's not the night time? What's the go with that sort of thing?
1: That's a really, really good question. Um, So we've got, um, at Adelaide Zoo, we have a nocturnal house where we um, have certain nocturnal Australian species where you can go see them in that location. And in that building, they're on a reverse cycle. So during the day, it's night time for them. And at night time, will the lights switch on and it's daytime for them. Um, So that's one way that you can do it in a... a, um, a setting where you're caring for animals. Mm. Um, But also we have some animals like owls and gliders and possums which appear in our um, educational programming during the day. And for those animals, we would only do that if those animals choose to take part. So for us, uh, we would never go in and just pick up an animal and drag it out to introduce it to a group of people. It has to walk towards us. Most of the time, it has to walk itself into its transport box so that we can take it. It has to make that move itself. Um, so it's saying, Yep, I'm going out with you right now. I'm happy with that. And um, for those animals, they're getting their favorite treats and rewards at that point in time. So for those animals, that's they're choosing to pop out during that time in saying that you wouldn't take. A ringtail possum and stand in the middle of the day in an area free of cover. We're very conscious about where those animals go, where we're introducing them to people. But those animals have adjusted to that cycle because they're choosing to do so. And then we provide those animals with enrichment items at the very end of the day that they'll use overnight, yeah. Um, while we're not there, so we we adjust our schedules for those animals. Um, it's a, re- it's a really good question. The other group of animals which are really interesting, and it, they tend to be the animals that people want to see most at the zoo, are the animals that are most active at dawn and dusk. So mm-hmm. they've got a great, great word for them, which is crepuscular, which is one of my mm-hmm. favourite words. So that's an animal that's dawn and dusk active. And so that's things like the big cats, uh, yeah. kangaroos, stuff like that. And so that's why I... If people ever ask me, oh, when's the best time to visit the zoo, come in when the doors first open in the morning because those animals that are active kind of early in the day, late in the afternoon, you tend to see most at that time of day. And so we adjust that in our schedules as well. Um, So, for example, for parrots, parrots are a great example of animals that feed in the early morning. They feed in the late afternoon and they spend the majority of the middle of the day sitting quietly in a tree mm. out of the sun so we feed them in the morning we give them a treats uh checking in the late afternoon and in the middle of the day they rest like they would in the wild so um it's a good example of that life cycle as well so depending on the animal we've got various tools that we can use to to manage those life cycles
0: yeah um more questions on the husbandry and like housing of the animals uh how does creating the enclosures or exhibits happen so do they work with the people who are going to build them along with the people who are keeping them uh what's the work that goes into that
1: yeah that's that's um it depends on the size of the project uh but in a modern zoo it tends to involve an architectural firm because at the end of the day, I'm a I'm a zookeeper. I don't understand architecture in the sense of how to make a building work and how to how to do it effectively. Um, so it involves architecture. It involves our works department. So if they're going to be maintaining that building long term, they have to have involvement um, the life sciences team. So that's the the keeping staff. We get involved to discuss. needs of the animal if you're setting up a breeding group of animals your facilities need to be different to if you're setting up a bachelor group of animals or a a non-breeding group of animals so we discuss those sorts of things Uh, at that moment our education department get involved because uh, when we're building a facility Now we want to be able to tell a story to our visitors. We want them to get something from their visit to that enclosure. So what does that animal's home area tell you about where that animal lives, how that animal survives, and what I can do as a person to help protect them, uh, protect the animal? So we work with the education department to get that message across as well. Uh, So it's, there's a whole, and then, um, working with our visitor services team as well to make sure that any facilities that we build are accessible for visitors as well. So mm. um, that's, that's a key part. We've been awarded multiple times at Adelaide Zoo for our accessibility. And uh, our last two major developments were done in partnership with Variety, the children's charity, to make sure that they were accessible for children of all abilities. And that's something that's really important to us because we're there to connect these animals with our entire community. So we want to make sure that anything we build is accessible and and also how that then works for the conservation of those animals. So if you're doing a breed for release program, those animals may not live where people can see them. So how to set up a facility for animals that are going back to the wild and how to set up a facility for animals that are remaining in human care. So there's lots of different stakeholders that get involved um, and it's quite. it takes years worth of work to build an enclosure that you could go to the zoo and see an animal living in because we understand now so much more about the impact of our work on our visitors but also how to do our job of caring for our animals it's so much better than we did 40 50 years ago so it's a much more complex process to build a facility these days but yeah it's a it's a great and exciting process and it takes a long time
0: mm. yeah on that obviously different animals have different needs are there any animals that you feel that couldn't be kept or shouldn't be kept in this sort of environment. Yeah, that's a that's a good question. On
1: an an objective pr- front, purely objective front, there is nothing theoretically to say that you couldn't provide for the needs of an animal in human care, irrelevant of what the animal is from an objective perspective. Um, this discussion when it comes up at the moment, because it, it's very active in the community, discussing about, you know, keeping animals in human care and, and the zoos of today are completely different to the zoos of 30, 40 years ago, just in how they look, um, let alone compared to what they were like a hundred years ago. So our industry's undergone a lot of change as we better understand how to provide care for animals. I think whether one species can or should be kept in human care is is far more of an ethical question, mm. and I think ethically, like ethics, are so deeply individual and personal from to each person that it's it's hard to do a broad brushstroke.
0: Yeah, and say
1: zoos shouldn't keep this, zoos are okay to keep this. Yeah, And one of the things that I'm very keen on as, a, as an animal trainer and as an animal behavioural, you know, I, I, I'm a behaviour nerd, I love behaviour, is the concept of not being anthropomorphic, so not putting human emotions into an animal. Exactly. So when I look at an animal, I don't look at that animal and go, Oh, I, that animal looks sad, or that animal looks happy, or that animal looks excited. Because at the end of the day, you don't actually know what's in an animal's mind. No one knows. There's no hundred percent way that you can say that animal is, you know, feeling a bit perturbed today. You you can't describe that. You can yeah. say that animal's showing me it's it's fanning its ears its feathers are a little bit more fluffed up than they normally would today. That could mean there's a health issue or something like that, but you try and stray away from providing those human emotions and the, the ethical debates about certain animals being in human care and not being in human care tend to revolve around anthropomorphic concepts yeah. of attachment to family, intelligence... Um, and so it's, it's, that's a complicated field. I've, I've never seen a species in human care, or I haven't seen it done well enough somewhere to say that animals shouldn't be kept in human care. Hmm. I've, that's not to say that every single facility around the world can provide that animal with the best care possible. There are certainly some places which are better at caring for certain animals than others. Um, But that's where accreditation frameworks come in. So there's a really easy way if you're a a person from the general public who, who wants to attend a facility and go, has this facility met accreditation needs based on the best understanding of animal welfare and science at this point in time? And in Australia, if you visit a facility that's accredited by the Zoo and Aquarium Association of Australasia, you know that they've been through a rigorous accreditation process based on animal welfare provisions. And that if that facility is past that and where's that accreditation, you can feel certain that those animals are getting the best care possible. So um, when it comes to certain species, there are facilities which provide amazing care for any species that's in human care at the moment. I think it's more a question of not whether that species should be kept in human care, but a facility should only be keeping that species if they know that they can provide it with the level of care that is the best practice that we know of at the moment. So that's Mm. kind of more how I tend to think about that question rather than that species being in human care or not being in human care
0: yeah and obviously on how you're saying we apply human attributes to animals a lot of people have this feeling with reptiles when you see a snake in a smaller enclosure you're like oh it's a big snake it wants to move around but actually if you look at them in the wild they actually like just hiding the whole time so i think you need to understand the animals and what you said is right Um, obviously in south australia if you don't have the facilities to keep a tropical animal you're not going to take that animal in in the first place. Um,
1: well, it's it's a you know like even you're saying around snakes, you know some snakes are sedentary snake where mm. they'll spend so I think of death adders where death adders spend the vast majority of their life in a one meter by one meter territory in the wild mm. and that's where they live. So if you're providing a home for a death adder, you keep that in mind. If I'm providing a home for a a reptile that spends far more of its time on the move, then I have to provide that. So our anaconda, for example, has a large body of water in her enclosure because they spend most of their time in water. And we can do that because she lives internally, so I can give her a tropical climate. And so it's, yeah, it's exactly what you're saying. We understand where these animals come from. So if you can provide the facilities to do it, and do it well, then that's what we work towards in human care.
0: Mm. And obviously, you spoke about before with the conservation that a lot of the aim is to release these animals. Are there animals that are native, that are kept in the zoos, that could be released? But obviously, things like kangaroos are abundant, so keeping them in captivity may be a bit different to keeping something that's maybe more threatened. But there, are there things that we keep in zoos for educational purposes?
1: Well, definitely. And that kind of comes back to that idea of connecting, uh, connecting our visitors with the wildlife around them. So one of our key missions at Zoo South Australia is connecting people with nature. And so having an animal in human care enables you to do that. Because I know my first experience that got me hooked on wildlife was having that interaction with the wildlife myself. Um, With things like kangaroos and so on, a lot of the times, if it's an animal that's abundant like that, what tends to be the case is that the animals living in zoos are animals that have come in through our wildlife hospital, Mm -hmm. are unable to be released, and we're able to provide a home for them. So you look at the, the bushfires that we've had in Australia over these last 12 months, Because of the level of expertise and care provided by Australian zoos, we were able to step in and work with those animals that had been injured, um, needed rehabilitation. And some of those animals have gone back to the wild and some of those animals are unable to be released. So we're able to provide them with a home. So there's elements of a zoo as well which, yes, they may not be the most endangered animal in the world, but there's still a reason for having those animals within our care. And the flip side of it is is as well, there's some animals which are so endangered now that they only exist because they're kept in human care within zoos. So, um, you know, Micronesian kingfishers, which uh, only exist in human care, completely removed off the island that they lived in in Southeast Asia because of introduced predators. They're working on removing those predators so that they can be released back into the wild. Um, That's a very common story throughout the world. Species which completely left the wild and have been reintroduced So one of the um, big ones that we've been involved with uh, was uh, Przewalski's horses, which are Mm. the only wild horse species in the world. They were found originally in the steppes of Mongolia and they were completely extinct in the wild. But zoos in Australia, so Monato Zoo, which is our, sorry, Monato Safari Park and Western Plains Zoo worked with facilities in Europe, bred those animals and released them back into Mongolia. And you can now find wild Mongolian uh, or Preswalski's wild horses. So um, there's a very broad spectrum of animals that are living, uh, living in human care. But as modern facilities, we ask ourselves, why do we have these animals? So the animals are never just there because they're there because they need a home, because they're unreleasable they're involved with an education program, they're involved with a conservation program, there's some reason that those animals are living with us to provide us, um, to to give us the um, the that those animals are home and we've got to fill that criteria to keep that species. We're not just keeping animals for the sake of doing it.
0: Hmm. So zoos are important in the future of the faunal diversity, not just here, but... In the world,
1: I think unquestionably. I think if you if you look at the amount of species that simply wouldn't exist today, um, I can name you three Australian freshwater turtle species right off the bat, which are the Western Swamp Tortoise, the Manning River Turtle, and the Bellinger River Turtle. Three freshwater turtle species that wouldn't exist on the planet today without the work of zoos in the last ten to twenty years. Um, Tasmanian devils wouldn't exist Mm -hmm. in the wild anymore without the work of zoos Um, like Monato Safari Park working with zoos around Australia and reintroducing those animals California condors, golden lion tamarins scimitar horned oryx you name it there's a whole range of animals which simply wouldn't exist without the work of zoos and so I'm incredibly passionate about the work that we do, because for me, it's, it's my practical way of being able to help in what I think is a really important mission and that's saving species from mm. extinction, which is the mission of, of the organization I work for, but it's also a deeply personal mission that I believe in very much.
0: Yeah. I've gotten into the nature side of things at an older age. So in my late teens, I started getting more interested in it. And obviously you can look back and see these animals that we've lost, like the thylacine here in Australia, or even if you go way back to like the stellar sea cow that were just culled off. And if we didn't, yeah. if we didn't understand um, conservation, then we need to learn from it now because especially here, we have animals that are only here, and they're only ever going to be here, and if we lose them, they're gone forever. Um, exactly. So I feel like looking back, we need to learn from those experiences, and as you said, now we have these conservation things in place, um, which is yeah. very positive for the future.
1: I I completely agree with you, and you know, as an animal nerd myself, as I would kill to see a stellar Sea cow mm. or uh, or. Um, but there's a whole bunch of, you know, Australia, unfortunately, has the highest rate of mammal extinctions mm-hmm. in the last hundred years. Um, but that's a sad story. But at the same time, we also have huge amounts of really passionate people out there working with species and re-establishing animals like the Western Swamp Tortoise, like the Regent Honeyeater, which was extinct in the wild, and now thanks to the work of zoos and the local community in the Kopadu Valley, have reintroduced the Regent Honeyeater into the wild. So there's a lot of really good news stories and lots of reason for hope and excitement that we can do it. We can conserve Mm. these animals and we just got to work together to get it done and that's you know that's the work that we'll do and we're still doing it here in the midst of COVID 19 and we'll we'll keep doing it and we're thankful that there's lots of people in the community who are on on board as well and who want to do the same
0: thing yeah definitely um there's been lots of positives coming out of the COVID. um there's been animals returning to um areas that they haven't been seen for a while um you look at in venice the canals there's animals l- swimming up and down them um do you think everyone taking sort of giving the environment of rest is going to help us see the benefits of looking after our environment
1: i think so it's an interesting question though um Because I think everyone's chomping at the bit to, you speak to most people and most people are chomping at the bit to get back on a plane and, and get back traveling or, Mm. um, so I, I, I think the key, the key message from it is, is that, um, nature is very resilient. Mm. And if we give it the space to, to do so, it will recover. And so i don't necessarily think the answer is everyone stops flying forevermore or yeah. or what have you but it shows what can happen with just a little bit of breathing room for the environment that you know plants and animals are very resilient and they'll find a way to survive so i think that gives you gives us hope for the animals that we are working with that are so endangered that As long as we find the right way to give those animals that little bit of breathing room in the wild, that little bit of space to do what they need to do, they'll find a way to come back. Mm. And, you know, the world is full of conservation success stories from people getting involved, you know, bald eagles being taken off the endangered list in the United States because of the removal of DDT from the environment. Yeah. Giant pandas are off the endangered species list now because of conservation work done. So it can happen. Um, And even, you know, you look at whales, they're a great example of almost on the brink of extinction in the 70s and 80s. And thanks to a moratorium in whaling, bit of breathing room, decades later, humpback whales are sighted up and down the east and west coast of Australia every single year. In bigger and bigger numbers, so it'll come back. I don't necessarily think that everyone will look at this and go, "Oh, I want to stop driving my car everywhere." Yeah. But I think it. I think it shows how resilient the wild world is when it comes to if you give it a bit of space, it'll it will survive and function as long as we give it the space that it needs to do so.
0: Mm, we just need to respect the. We're not the only animals living on the planet and obviously we can build our environment, whereas a lot of other animals rely on what's already there to survive. Um, Exactly.
1: And one of the great things that I love communicating to people is, you know, each animal's after exactly the same thing that we are in their environment. They're after a place and a space to call home, enough resources to survive and, and for most animals, it's to reproduce and raise a family. Mm. And so for them, they want a happy neighbourhood. They want a, a functioning society. It just looks a little bit different. And so I've, I think most people can empathise with that concept. They want They want a house that they can live in. They want shelter. They want enough food. And so if we provide that for animals and plants, then we can coexist together quite happily. And I think that's the goal.
0: Yeah, definitely. To finish off, I've got a double question for you. Uh, what do you see for the future of zoos, and what's the future of uh, Chad Criddle in the next five years going on at the mm. zoo?
1: So for zoos, I think we're just we're going to continue with the work we're doing. We, you know, some of the species we might be working with might change because either an animal, a program that we're working with might might wrap up because it's proven to be successful or um it might change tack a little bit, but I think zoos will continue with the conservation work we're doing. Um and the the um the overall uh that that overall industry I think will remain focused on that goal of conserving species. Um I think for me, where I see myself in five years, I don't see myself leaving Adelaide. I um Having grown up in Sydney, I'm certainly a fan of the affordable housing that South Australia has to offer. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> that's certainly nice. Um, but it's uh, I I am loving the work with the uh, programs that I'm involved with at Adelaide Zoo. So whether that's in the same role that I'm at or some other role at Zoo South Australia, I, I see myself staying with Zoo South Australia or still being with Zoo South Australia in five years' time just because mm-hmm. I... I like the way the organisation works and the projects we're involved with. Um, hopefully, you know, I would have reached a little bit of a, a wider audience in the work that I do, um, trying to talk about those stories of conservation and zoos yeah. through my um, through my Instagram feed, um, which I have been focusing on over these last few months and and have been getting you know good good response and getting that message out there so hopefully that's reached a few more people in mm. five years time where you would hope um but yeah that's uh that's where I see myself
0: yeah um just for the people listening what is your uh Instagram
1: oh yes it's at Chad's zoo life no mm. no apostrophe between the d and the s just Chad's zoo life yeah. and that's generally lots of nice animal pictures and and glimpses into um the world of a zookeeper at adelaide zoo and also a lot of uh conservation stories and work that we're doing um both here at zoo south australia and some of the other places i've worked and some of the work of my colleagues around the world as well so um yeah definitely all welcome to come and uh have a have a follow and and see some animal content
0: fantastic well, this has actually been the longest interview we've done and <laughs> Sorry we're <about> really that. <laughs> happy that you've been able to share all of this information with us. And obviously um, we could share the information with our listeners from an educational standpoint as well. So really happy to have you on. Thanks for coming and good luck to you in the future with all your endeavours. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate
1: it. And um, yeah, really appreciate the opportunity to have a chat with you guys. So thank you very
2: much.
3: No worries. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to The Blokes In Your Ear.
3: You can check us out on Facebook and our page, The Blokes In Your Ear.
2: Also check out our Instagram and Twitter
0: using the tag at Blokes In Your Ear. Thanks again for listening and we'll be back with another podcast soon.